about tomorrow. I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. I don't know about tomorrow, I just live from day to day. Sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry o'er the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside Him, for He knows what is ahead. Many about tomorrow I don't seem to understand but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand I don't know about tomorrow it may bring me poverty but the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that is my fortune may be through the flame or flood. But his presence goes before me and I'm covered with his blood. Things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. What a pleasure it was to listen to our children sing and live praises unto the Lord. That's a blessing, isn't it? <clears throat> I thought, uh, boy, that's the future right there. And boy, we, uh, it's a wonderful thing to have them in God's house and learning those principles and just the, uh, the beliefs that we grew up on. And that's so wonderful. And again, we, as we're fine, we live in a world that's a little upside down today in that area, but... We're certainly glad that here at Community Baptist Temple, they're getting that foundation. And again, <clears throat> what we do here is simply reinforce what you're teaching and sharing at home. And our desire is just to continue to say to those children, mom and dad are on target. They know exactly what they're doing. And the word of God is true both in your home and here too. So it's not any different. We're just reinforcing it. 
And boy, I tell you what, we appreciate your investment in your children and your desire to see them grow in the things of Christ. That's a blessing. And uh, just keep up the good work there. And boy, they did such a good job today. Well, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judah, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. <clears throat> One of the great passages uh, in the Word of God. And again, focusing and uh, directing our attention to the, the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. And boy, I'll tell you what, it was God in flesh, the Bible tells us. And we're so glad today that the Lord Jesus came. And uh, we celebrate that as Christmas here in America. And uh, Christmas, unfortunately, is changing, it seems. Matter of fact, uh, I read recently some statistics, and it says 9 in 10 Americans say they celebrate Christmas, but the meaning of the holiday is changing for many. According to a new report by the Pew Research Religion and Public Life Project, only about half see Christmas mostly as a religious holiday. <clears throat> while one-third view it as more of a cultural holiday. Virtually all Christians, 96%, celebrate Christmas, and two-thirds see it as a religious holiday. In addition, fully 8 in 10 <clears throat> non-Christians in America also celebrate Christmas, but most view it as a cultural holiday rather than a religious occasion. I don't know about you, but <clears throat> I find that rather alarming. That Christmas is quickly turning to what one, many would say is a, a cultural holiday versus a religious one. I mean, the definition of Christmas is obviously changing according to the research. And it's going from being religious to being cultural. Uh, that, that's, that concerns me, and I trust it concerns you. I mean, the fact that manger scenes are considered a violation of separation of church and state, and that some American corporations, again, forbid their employees to say Merry Christmas, is just a few evidences of the fact that Christmas is changing. Our culture's changing, really. And as a result, Christmas is changing. In Cincinnati, Ohio, we were provided the first ever zombie nativity scene. <clears throat> you may have read about it. You may have heard about it. I don't know, but CNN reported on it. Uh, CNN starts off its report here that I just recently read to say, Relax, everyone. Zombie baby Jesus will stay in the manger. Now, listen, that's an abomination, folks. Uh, again, but, but, but this is what's interesting. <clears throat> the creator of this abominable display features basically an, an, an undead version of Jesus, a Jesus that never died, so to speak, a, a Mary and a Joseph and Jesus that... that were, are still living after thousands of years, if, if you would. And, and he was told to take down the nativity scene, not because it violated, a, a, not because it violated his religious uh, rights, but because it was a zoning issue. Uh, but again, bloggers and those on the Internet 
quickly jumped to his support and his aid and said, how dare you deny him his religious rights? And uh, it was amazing to me how they stood up for him and his right, you know, First Amendment rights and so forth. And uh, I was amazed how they drew to him and supported him. And he's allowed to have a zombie Jesus. He's allowed to have this nativity scene with dead people living in it, so to speak. I wonder if they'll jump to our aid when they tell us we can't knock on doors in our city. That it violates our rights. But the Creator said that He first planted... I won't even say His name because I won't even give Him credit, folks. Honestly, I just won't do it. But the Creator of this zombie manger scene first planted the scene on His front lawn last year with leftover props from his 13 Rooms of Doom, a Halloween attraction he runs uh, in a nearby uh, state. And in a statement on Facebook, he says that the manger is a, quote, a wonderful piece of artwork. And that he and his family are not atheists. We're not atheists. And it's a wonderful piece of artwork. Now, I, I, I don't know. And I'm not going to get into that whole issue. But once again, the spirit of Christmas is being destroyed and disintegrated. I mean, when people can put displays like that up and somehow embrace it and others on the Internet will come to their aid. I know it was probably a very minute group, but still, the, the, greasy wheel, uh, the, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, so to speak. And let me tell you something. That's why, as believers, we need to be a little more vocal, a lot more vocal about what we believe and what offends us. You know, the fact is, is that doesn't it bother you a little bit that people can get on the Internet and talk about how it offends them that a municipality would ask them to remove this particular abomination, this this particular display, but then we'll turn around and we just want to pass out our tracts in schools. We just want to invite people to, to, to church. We just want to put up a little nativity display on a desk over here in the corner somewhere, and we don't even have the right to do that, but we won't lo- uh, yell loud enough to get any publicity at all, and in the fact, they'll yell, yell loud enough that they'll get national publicity. I'm telling you, we need to do something about the fact that we're not being heard And they may not want to carry our voice on the national news. And we may not get the playtime. But somebody needs to know that it's an abomination today that we're taking Christ out of Christmas. There is no Christmas without Christ. The very root of the word is Christ. It makes sense. But sadly enough, as much as it disturbs us, and it ought to disturb us, The world does have a very, very strong pull on each of us. And you know, even we who are faithful, if not careful, can begin to become somewhat numb to these things, accepting of them, tolerant of them. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, we noted last week, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Again, Christ is being removed from our culture, our society, and as a result, the definition of Christmas is quickly changing. It's sad, but it's true. But you know, I'm still, I'm still hesitant to give up the real meaning of Christmas. I think you are too. I don't want to give it up. I don't want to buy presents for no reason other than to buy presents. I'd rather keep my bank account high. Are you kidding me? A time to give presents? 
I think the world has created every opportunity they can, and I'm sure there'll be others along the way to have to buy something for somebody. I mean, you got, I mean, you've got grandparents' days and dad day, mom day. You got children's day every day. I mean, you got so many days and so many opportunities and so many things they create. I mean, you got Swedish Day. Oh, you got to buy flowers or you got to get them a present. You got to take them out to dinner. We, I mean, every one of these days is just created so that we can keep our economy moving, I think. And now here we have this situation with Christmas where we're going to take Christ out of it and we're going to remove the real meaning of, of the season and we're going to say, well, just keep buying the gifts and keep pumping the economy full of money. But there's no real reason other than the fact that we just want you to feed the machine. And I have a problem with that. It's already been too commercialized, and now we're going to take Christ completely out of it and still have it. It's crazy. So in my home and in the church I attend, that's not going to be the case. And I don't think it's going to be the case in your home either. Praise God for that. And when someone asks us about it, we ought to be bold enough to say, Listen, Christ is going to stay in Christmas in my house. The first six letters of the word are Christ. And as they're hauling you off to jail, I'll say, praise the Lord for your boldness. No, I'm teasing. (laughs) I'm teasing. (laughs) I support you. I'm behind you all the way. (laughs) So the Christ of Christmas. Who is he? What was his purpose for coming? I mean, did he accomplish what he came to do? And again, uh, you know, I'm not going to give him up. I'm not going to remove him. So I thought, well, let's talk a little bit about the Christ of Christmas. And so last week we began to discuss this particular issue and we started our series by noting his birth. And we we noted that his birth was prophesied, that it was proclaimed, that it was publicized. We learned that his birth was supernatural and it was unlike any other. We also noted and understood that although we've experienced a natural birth, in order to really enjoy heaven, we need to experience a supernatural birth. We need to be born again, not just a physical, but a spiritual birth. And this week, I want to turn our attention to his life. I mean, and what I want us to understand and kind of glean from all of this is that his life was very significant. I think we could say that safely. I mean, his life was, it not only impacted the world in which we live, but it impacted the universe as well. His contribution to mankind is unparalleled. It is priceless, is it not? And so I want to consider the Christ of Christmas's life and just note four simple thoughts about his life and maybe make just a simple application in the short time that we have today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you again, Lord, for those children and just the future they represent. Lord, the world may be going one direction, but thank God for parents and people that are determined to keep you in the midst and in the center of all things in their life, their family, their marriage, their homes. And Lord, are bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, what an inspiration those children were to me today. And I pray, dear God, they'd continue to love you, to serve you, and allow you to lead in their life. Now bless us today, and may our hearts be stirred by your word. May we be encouraged as we consider your life. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, when we think about the Christ of Christmas, and we think about his life, his life was a life of purpose. It was a life of purpose. 
I mean, Jesus spent his life pleasing the Father by doing the Father's will. Now, in the book of John, take your Bible if you would, please. Turn over to John chapter 4. We'll note just a couple of verses here along the way. But Jesus' life pleased God. But why did it please God? Because he obeyed the Lord. He, he did the will of the Father. In the book of John chapter 4, verse 34, we read these words, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. It's to do the will of him that sent me. John chapter 6, turn there if you would please as we'll look at a couple of verses. John 6, 38 and John 6, 40. He says, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. We could read verse 39, goes right along with it, but for time, 640, it says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I mean, that's the will. He sent me with a purpose. He sent me for a reason. And we could, we could sum up all of that in the words of Christ in the book of Luke, chapter 19, verse 10. When he says, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the purpose for his coming. He had a purpose for existing. He had a purpose for waking up in the morning. He had a purpose for taking every breath that he took. He was going to please his Father by doing his will. And the will of the Father was that he share his life his sacrifice, so that mankind could be saved. And so Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, the condition of mankind was so bleak that he needed saved. But hold on, not only saved, but sought. See, notice that he came to seek and to save. The word seek means to go in search of or, or quest of, to go in search of or quest of, to look for, to search for by going from place to place. Now, I, I, don't, I, I have a little bit of a military background, and one of the things I know, and if you watched any television or you've seen any shows that deal with the military or maybe some kind of, of uh, urban assault team, you find that they, they go into the cities and they go into the houses and they, they go from room to room to room in search of any danger. They don't just kick the front door down and stop there and go, all clear. That's not how it works. They literally go from room to room. A closet, they're, open, they're checking the closets. They're checking anywhere where anyone could possibly be that presents any threat of danger to them and their team. Now, they're searching. And in, the, in, in, in definition, they're, they're on a quest, if you will. They're looking for something. They're searching by going from place to place. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he left heaven and came to earth. Man was so depraved. Man was so wicked. Man was so walking in darkness that not only did he need to be saved, he needed to be sought after. And so Jesus went from room to room, from place to place, every single nook and cranny of this world seeking to save that which was lost. We're so lost that we need sought. Jesus lived his life with a purpose. He was determined to save us from our sin. He spent a lifetime seeking. And in the end, he did his part, which was part of his purpose. 
dying on a cruel cross, enduring the shame, and shedding His blood, His perfect and precious blood for you and I. Every day He woke up, He knew why He was on earth. He understood it. Every day He woke up, He knew what He needed to do. His was a life of purpose. Not only that, but his, his life was a life of purity. Take your Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, please. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The Bible says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, which means he can be. He understands our hurt, our pain, our sorrows, our trials, our tribulations, our difficulties, our struggles. So he understands all that, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The Bible teaches us that Jesus endured and dealt with everything that you and I deal with. He faced every temptation. He dealt with every situation, circumstance that we could understand. You say, well, he was never married, so he didn't have to deal with my wife. Well, okay, maybe he didn't have to deal with that one, but he dealt with a lot of people like her. I'm sure she's very nice, and you just don't know it yet, sir. But anyway, <laughs> I had to save myself there, didn't I? I was digging a hole. I was digging a hole there, see? But the fact is, is that Jesus Christ understood. He, can, he could identify with you and I. And, and yet he was tempted like we are, but he was without sin, the Bible says. Someone says, well, I just can't believe anybody could be without sin. Well, let me ask you, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? And if you say, I don't, then you know what? Who cares about the rest of it then, really? Well, we, we wouldn't argue about that one point. You might as well deal, deal with the real issues. Like, there, is there even a God in heaven if you don't even believe the Word? And if there's a God, there's probably a Bible. Because in the Bible that says there's a God that says there's a Bible. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's kind of circular thinking to some degree, but the fact is, is that someone says, I just don't believe Jesus could have been perfect. Well, how could he not be perfect? The same word that says he existed is the one that said he was perfect. And all I know is, is that the Bible's true. So we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to earth with a purpose, who was pure and clean and holy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, the Bible says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who, here they are, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He did no sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was pure. So we have this Jesus, the Christ of Christmas, who, whose life was a life of purpose. A life of purity. You know, his, his, his was a life of power, too. A life of power. In the book of Matthew, turn there if you would, please. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. The Bible says, And it came to pass... When Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John had heard, John had heard that the prison, uh, excuse me, when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. 
and said unto him, talking about the Lord, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and shew John again those things, notice again, those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That comes directly out of a passage in Isaiah, and the fact is, is that John knew the Old Testament as well. And he says, listen, you tell him what's taking place. You tell him of the power of me, what I'm doing in the midst of the people of God here. And boy, he went back. Now, someone says, well, how in the world could that happen? Well, it appears to me that John the Baptist is suffering in prison. And while he's suffering in prison, his faith is somewhat shaken concerning the identity of Christ. That's what it seems to be here. Who is Christ? Okay, I baptized him and, and, and I had that sign from heaven, but now I'm beginning to wonder. Well, why would John wonder who Jesus was or if he indeed was the promised Messiah? Well, because every prophecy that he had read in the Old Testament seemed to point to the fact that Jesus who came as Messiah would also sit on a throne and rule and reign on the throne of David. And all of a sudden, all he hears about is the fact, all he knows is that I'm sitting in prison, rotting away, possibly going to die for my faith because I believe in a man named Jesus Christ. And here I am, and I'm expecting his expectations were, were, were correct in one sense. He, he was on spot on on what Christ should be. That Christ should come, that Christ should wipe out all the enemies, that Christ should sit on the throne of David, that Christ should rule and reign. He was right about all of that. His timing was wrong, though. So now John's starting to wonder as he's suffering in prison, as he's facing death. Are you really the one that I believed you to be, that I was convinced you were? Are you really Messiah? And Jesus says, you tell him what you have seen and heard. What he's saying is, the power that I have exhibited. Hey, Jesus Christ, he lived a life of power. I mean, everywhere he went, people were healed and lives were changed and souls were saved. I mean, he was doing a mighty work. And that mighty work was evidence of his identity and the reality of him. His was a life of purpose. His was a life of power and purity. Finally, his was a life of people. This was a life of people. Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark 10, verse 45. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Lord Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. His disciples, of course, have always struggling with the ministry a little bit. If they were honest, they would say, Yeah, our flesh gets in there every once in a while, and we really do long to be praised and elevated and magnified. We really do want to feel that we're loved, accepted, and that we're somebody's, and... Jesus has to temper all of that mess. And he says to them very simply, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. You don't elevate so that you can receive. You elevate so that you can give. He goes on, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. See, everything about Christ's life was about others. Everything. It's about others. And you know, he provides us with a wonderful example over in the book of John, chapter 13. Turn there, would you please? John chapter 13. 
Everything about Christ's life was others. It was never about him, ever. Never. If he ate a meal, he ate it because he needed energy so he could serve others. If he slept, he slept because he needed energy and he needed refreshment so he could serve others. It never, never was there anything that Christ did because of him. I just need to relax. I need to take it easy. I, you know, I just need, I deserve, and I, no, never like that. That wasn't Christ's purpose. It's not how he lived his life. Look in John chapter 13, verse 5. John 13, verse 5. Someone says, well, that's Christ. I mean, he's God in flesh, so cool. Well, let's read the passage first before we make any judgments here. Let's see what the Bible says and what Christ says. In John chapter 13, verse 5, notice he goes on to say here, After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel wherein he was girded. He's going to make his way to Calvary very soon. One of his final acts and one of his final interactions with the disciples where we're reading about now. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? (laughs) Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now. But thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. It wasn't because he was being disrespectful. He's saying, You're not going to get down there and wash my feet. <laughs> I mean, you're Jesus. You're God in flesh. You created me. Hold on. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Giving him a spiritual lesson now too on the need for cleansing. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. Ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore saith he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he saith unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. What's he saying to every one of us that are believers then? He's saying every one of us ought to be the greatest servant there is in the world. Every one of us ought to put others ahead of ourselves. Every one of us ought to have a purpose. And every one of us ought to have a reason for existing. And that reason is to please our Heavenly Father. And that reason is to live a life of purity and power and to have a life of people. It's funny, Jesus is on the cross gasping for his final breath. And he's still focused and concerned about others. You say, what do you mean? Well, in John chapter 19, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Talking about John. Woman, behold thy son, John. Then saith he to his disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. He's still worried about mama. Here he is suffering, bleeding, and dying on a cross in the greatest agony one can imagine. And yet he says, whoa, 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 I've got to take care of mom. 
It's not about me, it's about her. And then before he actually takes that last breath, he says, Father, forgive them. He's still worried about everybody else. He said, that's, that's again, it's, it's all, he's God and I'm not, I know. But he's given you an example that you should do as he's done to you. That's what the Bible says of all of us. So when we start making an application and we understand, we know already and automatically here very clearly that his was a life of purpose. His was a, a life of purity and a life of power, a life of people. That made his life a life of significance. When I think of Jesus Christ, I think about a life that was lived, not in vain, but a life that was lived that made a tremendous impact and a difference in the world in which we live and in the universe. He lived a life of significance. And you know, God would have us live a life of significance as well. You know, every one of us wants to believe that we have impacted others, that we've made a difference in lives, that we've left a legacy. We do. We really want that. You know, you may not verbalize that. You may not say it out loud. But down deep in your heart, you truly want to believe that somebody will remember you when you're gone and that you will live on in the lives of others and those around you. And that's okay and that's all right and it ought to be that way. But for the right reasons. So many come to the end of their lives and upon reflecting, they conclude that their life was a waste. They regret doing so little to live on, to, to live for others and so little to leave for others. And you know what? We're guilty in reality of just becoming somewhat selfish with our time, our energy and our finances. And in reality, we spend our greatest assets on the here and the now. And more than not, we spend them on us or ourselves. That's just a reality that we have to be honest and face. You know, that, when it's all said and done, leaves us feeling very empty and unfulfilled when the reality of death begins to pick at our heart and our mind. See, it's, it's not so bad when you have life, when you have health, and you drowned it with all the things, all the excitement. But when you're laying on your deathbed, and you begin to reflect and you realize that everything you did was for you, that all your money that was spent primarily on you and yours, every time the energy that you spent was you and yours, that you really left no real lasting legacy because you spent used up most of it, if not all of it, on self. And you know, people can say all that, well, I don't do that. But let me tell you, I have met so many people that lay on a bed dying and say, if the Lord would only give me another chance, I'd do things different. Oh, they wouldn't have thought that just six months earlier. But there, when death is knocking at the door, all of a sudden, they regret not investing in others. Those children that were there, well, what an investment we need to make in them. There's so many things we need to do that we're not doing. I'm not talking about as parents. I'm talking about even as a church. There's so many people in this room that could invest in those lives, that could truly impact them for an, a, a, an eternity, if you will. Some of the people I remember growing up that when I did go to church as a 
youngster, I still remember certain people that made an impact, that inspired me, that encouraged me along the way. Oh, my life wasn't always what it is today, but I can tell you this. There are people I remember who invested in me. It may have been as simple as talking to me on a regular basis, taking me out to lunch, allowing me to work side by side with them and teaching me something. But I'm telling you that the investment we make in others, and it costs us something. It costs us time. It costs us money. It costs us energy to invest in the lives of others. But Jesus Christ left glory. He came with a purpose and he fulfilled that purpose. He pleased the Lord God, his father, by obeying him and fulfilling the will that God sent him for. And that was to seek and to save that which was lost and to ultimately make an impact in the world and in the universe in which he lived. And may I say today that God wants the same out of you. There are souls dying around this city Go to die and go straight to hell. And you work side by side with them. And you go to school with them every day. And yet we'll sit there and hold all of that truth that we have in our heart. And we'll hold all of the Spirit of God and the power that we possess in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we won't share one word about Him. We won't make that eternal investment because we are so worried about ourselves. You need to live a life of purpose. I don't want to get to the end of my life and feel like, who's going to remember me? Is anybody even going to know that I've ever existed? You say, well, my kids will. And I know some parents that at the end of their life wonder if their kids will even remember them. But I know one thing. I don't care how it turned out with your kids. I know how it can turn out with somebody else's if you'll invest in the lives of others. There are families out there that one day could thank you in eternity because you knocked on a door, because you shared something at a Christmas party, or because you went to their home and told them about Jesus Christ, and because you tried to make an investment from the Word of God, not just in salvation, but in their Christian growth. Financial investment, physical investment, spiritual investments. Revelation 4.11, the Bible says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Let me ask you, are you pleasing the Lord today? Are the things you invest in, invested in for others? I'm not opposed. You say, well, do you watch TV, preacher? Because that ain't helping me. But maybe it does, because maybe every once in a while when I watch something, it makes me a little more lighthearted. I don't know, and I don't want to bite your head off. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm saying that maybe sometimes you need to go play a round of golf. Maybe sometimes you need to take care of a hobby or do something. That's fine. If the Lord's okay and, you're, and He's in that, do that. That's fine. You need to separate yourself from the world or you may just come unglued. I'm just saying there are things we do sometimes that would seem to be somewhat uh, activities of personal pleasure or things that make us feel more comfortable. I, I, I don't know. I can't judge you on that. I can only look at my life and there are times that I sit in front of a TV and I think to myself, I am wasting my time. And then there are other times I sit there and think, I'm doing this for her. Now, I'm one of those crazy people that does like those real mushy, gushy shows. Fellas, you would hate my guts. Because like I, I like those things, you know, where they finally get together at the end. And other than the fact that I have to tell tell you know the kids if there's kids sitting around they're not supposed to be kissing because they're not married <laughs> other than that part of it i like it <laughs> but you do things why do you do what you do 
Let's please God with our lives. That's all. Let's live a life of purpose. And you know, he came to save. So that's the first thing you need to settle right now. I mean, the creator made you because he wants to have fellowship with you. If you won't come to him, maybe it's because you're selfish about your time. You don't want to give him you. You want you to yourself. You want to be able to live how you want to live. You want to be able to do what you do. You want to have the right to tell yourself what's right and wrong and where you can go, what you can do, who you can be with. You don't want nobody telling you what to do. You got fed up with that when you was in your home anyway. Mom and dad trying to tell you, or grandma and grandpa, forget that mess. I want control of my life. Let me tell you something. Die to that. That, that is going to lead you right to hell, that spirit. You need to say, all I want to do is please the one that created me. And he sent his son to die for me, to shed his blood on my behalf. If he was willing to make that kind of investment in me because he thinks me or believes me to be that valuable, then let me tell you something. That's the kind of God that I want to serve. And I'm going to come to him and let him save me. And I'm going to give my life to him too. Today, you need to get, get it straight with the Lord. You need to settle your soul salvation. And you need to settle who's on the throne of your life. If you're saved, you need to settle the fact that not you're saved, but that he's on the throne again, if you've kind of removed him. And live a life of purpose. And that life of purpose includes a few things. That life of purpose includes the power of God in your life. It includes... Purity and holiness. And it includes people. And I want to encourage you to invest your life in the things that really matter most. And lay on your deathbed one day if God gives you the opportunity to say your final goodbyes and know in your heart that there are others in this world and in the next that you have impacted and influenced because of Jesus Christ in your life and the life that you gave to him. Father, we come to you. We thank you for all you mean to us and all that you do for us. Bless us in these next few moments.